Welcome to the Pockets of Knowledge podcast, where we share illuminating stories and knowledge to inform, educate, inspire and empower you in the areas of business, health, finance, philanthropy, art, and entrepreneurship, designed to help you achieve your goals. And now here is your host, Desiree Stanley. Welcome everyone to the Pockets of Knowledge podcast. I'm Desiree Stanley, and with me today is Janine Chernoff. Welcome, Janine. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Awesome. So we're going to talk about home loans today, but I'd like to start with a little bit of your background. How long have you been in the mortgage industry? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. 40 years. Um, 42, if you want to count, when I started in school, I uh, tripped into the business and never intended for it to be my career, but I had a wonderful opportunity to get in the ground floor of a mortgage banking organization and learn every facet of it, uh, primarily in operations in the early years and then sales in, in the later years. Oh, that's excellent. And so let's just jump right in. Okay. Why is owning a home one of the best investments a person can make? Well, I assume your listeners might be all over, but if you think about California alone, nobody that I've ever known in 40 years has ever said, I wish I didn't invest in real estate. Nobody. Even through uh, scary times like 2008 and the mortgage meltdown, the market always rebounds. So it's a great investment, number one. But I think the most important reason is going back to the basics of home ownership, which is the emotional and um, physical stability of having your own home and not having to move, building your, your family and your roots. Yeah, excellent. That's a great point. Uh, the non-financial benefits are just as big as the financial benefits, right? Absolutely. That stability, as you right. pointed out, for your for your family to grow and your roots to, um, you know, get deep in the soil. Those are just as important as the financial benefits from owning a home. That's if excellent. not more. And I think in the last few years, especially as we've seen rapid appreciation, I think we've kind of gotten away from the real reason we should be buying a home. Uh, and that's, that's really what we need to get back to, especially in markets like these slightly higher interest rates. You know, if, if a family is comfortable with the payment, owning a home is much better than paying your landlord's rent. So you get the stability of home ownership, not having to move and the financial benefit. Absolutely. And that's a, a great point you just brought up is paying rent to a landlord where they have the option to raise your rent every single year. Right. Whereas owning a home, you're locking in that uh, amount that you pay every month and it doesn't increase unless you, you know, maybe draw off the equity of your home or, or some reason right. like that. Correct. Uh, that amount is always going to uh, stay the same for the length of your loan. That's right. Right. Most yeah. people get a 30 year fixed mortgage. Um, and so fixed rate, especially in this interest rate environment is the way to go. Uh, because you don't have to worry about those adjustments. You know, you, you qualify when you get in. Ideally, your income actually goes up. Uh, so owning a home, a home gets easier over time, not harder in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. And so speaking of the interest rates, they are much higher now than they yeah. were even, you know, eight months, 12 months ago. Right. And so why would somebody even consider buying now when these rates are as high as they are? 
Great question. Um, I think it's perspective. We have to look back over the last 40 years since we really started tracking rates. Uh, over the last 40 years, the average in uh, interest rate is 7.76. That's eye-opening. Uh, we're not there yet. We're not, we haven't reached 7.76, so we're under the average, number one. So it feels higher than it is because they were historic lows that we saw over the last few years. And we know that they were artificially subsidized by the government, considering what the country and the economy went through uh, for the pandemic. So it was the right decision to make at the time, but it wasn't reality. And uh, a lot of people are having a hard time thinking about, oh, I'm not gonna get 2.875. No, no, you're not, it's gone. And, and most likely it's gone forever, but it never was really a real rate. So for that reason, rates are still lower than the average. In 1981, uh, right about when I got into the business, interest rates were 13.88. Wow. It's really relative to your income and what you can afford and what you're comfortable with. It isn't the rate that people should be focusing on right now. It's the payment. And I think that's really important and a psychological hurdle that people can't get over. So when I talk to borrowers in my first initial conversations, that's always, let's talk about payment comfort level. Let's not really talk about the interest rate right now. The beauty of our system is that once you get in and you close on your and you close on the sale and your home loan, if interest rates go down, you can always refinance. So there is always that option uh, that we don't go into mortgages in order to refinance, but no. in higher interest rate markets, we want to keep that uh, awareness out there that when they go down and they will go down, you can, you can reduce that rate. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Uh, it's something I've heard recently pretty often is the idea of marrying the home and dating the rate. Yeah, exactly. It's temporary. Yes. The home yeah. is long-term. Absolutely. And again, it's why are we buying the home in the first place, right? If you're paying $3,000, $3,500 a month in, in rent, and you can buy for $4,000, $4,500 or more, if you qualify, that money is going to build your wealth. Again, not the landlord's. It's, it's really the payment and if you can qualify. And qualifying is not as difficult as most people think. I think that's also a, a misnomer that I like to really educate people on. Okay, so speaking of that, what are some of the creative ways that people are able to qualify? And, and I know there's a number of different programs for buyers that can help, uh, say, first-time buyers or even um, people who've purchased before. Right, right, great question. Um, you don't need 20% down. You don't even need 10% down. Uh, we have some programs, as all lenders do, even with no down. That That is not as uh, usual as, as a low down program, but there are a lot of creative ways. One of the newer ways, and you're going to hear about this a lot in the news going forward, is shared equity. The concept of shared equity as a down payment assistance. The state of California is getting in on it, and that's why you're going to hear more of it. They call it their California Dream Program. It's not available yet, but there are currently um, shared equity programs available. I'll use uh, Santa Clara County as an example. Uh, there's a program uh, where the borrower is required to put in 3% plus closing costs, 
and they come in um, and they is the housing trust of Silicon Valley uh, with 17%. Oh. So then you have a 20% down loan, no mortgage insurance and a lot more affordability because you've just put 20% down, but your investment is, is 3% plus closing costs. And maybe now with the market turning, the seller might pay those closing costs because we're seeing that happen more and more. Um, that's a good example of a current shared equity program that we do quite often. There are others as well. And then it's interesting to see that the state of California is going to be uh, getting uh, jumping on the bandwagon, if you will, because they recognize the lack of affordability, um, not only in the Bay Area, but the entire state. So shared equity is one. Um, there are also numerous down payment assistance programs, depending on what state you live in, what county, and even what city. What we do is we take in the loan application, we look at the income, many of them are uh, limited by the income, uh, meaning they have income limits, uh, credit scores, um, and lots of different rules. So really, uh, we have to analyze the loan application for the first loan, as well as maybe the second loan, if there's a second where uh, we're either using it for down payment assistance or closing cost assistance. So we do that quite often. Um, some of them are deferred payments. Most have to be repaid. Some are grants that uh, can be forgiven over time. So Excellent. there's a lot of tools in our tool belt uh, as loan officers that we really have to take your application in and then direct you. Well, you, it looks like you qualify for this. Some require um, separate applications, but some don't. It's not as difficult as people think. Oh, that's that's good to know. And that... Uh, shared equity is, I have not even heard of it yet. So yeah, completely brand new, right? Yes. Yes. Um, for the, I, I, I would say for the last five years, um, I've done mm -hmm. a lot of them, not only okay. the program I mentioned in Santa Clara County, there's also a program called Landed. Landed is a home loan that's very innovative for primarily educators, first responders, um, teachers, and it's the same concept, but their program is 5% from the borrower and they come in with 15%. My analogy when I'm talking to borrowers about shared equity is don't we all wish we had a rich aunt or uncle who said, I'm gonna loan you 15% so you can buy a home. And when you go to sell or refinance, I would like to be repaid my 15% plus a return on investment. And that's exactly what shared equity does is you share a portion of the equity gain, not the principal pay down, which is really smart. The principal pay down, you're paying the mortgage payment and you get the benefit of that equity growth. But let's say a home in California, by the time you go to sell it, you've gained $100,000 in equity, which is very easy to do in California, and you borrowed 100,000. So in that example, you borrowed 100,000, you gained 100,000, and you're going to split, depending on the program, probably 25 to 30% of that equity. So if you gained 100,000, you're gonna own, owe them, if it's, if it's 20%, the 20,000 plus the original 100,000. 
that's that's what my rich aunt or uncle would do if I had a rich aunt or <laughs> uncle. Um, and so it, it's it's a very fair business deal, and they're safe. They're recorded deeds of trust. Uh, yeah, we're doing a lot of those these days. Oh, awesome. You know, I have to just share this story. When my husband and I first bought uh, a townhouse in our mid twenties, and that was a long time ago. I'm not going to say, but <laughs> um, our interest rate was in the sevens. And we had an, an 80, 10, 10 loan. So we put 10% down, yes. got a second loan for 10% and then a full loan for um, the, the, the remainder. And so we were able to skip having the private mortgage insurance, which if you want to go ahead and, and, and kind of explain what that means. Yes, absolutely. And we still do those. We call them piggybacks and combos which is an 80, 10, and 10. So by doing that with a second deed of trust, in, in that case, it wasn't a shared equity. It was just a second loan that you had to pay back over time. You avoid the mortgage insurance. So mortgage insurance is required to protect the lender because you're putting less down. And so when the lower the down payment, the higher the risk is to the lender. And the sure. risk to the lender is, is there's two risks, really. One, that you're going to make your payment late, or two, you're not going to be able to make the payment and the house will have to go into foreclosure and the lender will have to take it back. So the monthly mortgage insurance that people pay is into a fund to protect the lender in the event that that were to happen. So nobody wants to pay mortgage insurance. No. So everybody tries any way possible to work with a program that can take it away because you're not benefiting yourself financially by paying mortgage insurance. No. You, in your example, which is a great example, you benefited yourself by paying down that second instead of paying mortgage insurance to gain equity. So yeah, we, we, we do those still quite often. So talking about uh, down payments, uh, are there assistance programs for the closing costs and the down payments? Absolutely. Um, one that we use quite often, it's I think it's been around 30 years or more, is CalHAFA. Everything has an acronym, and I apologize in advance. California Housing Finance Agency. And what CalHAFA does is they have FHA financing and conventional financing. And I can describe the differences between the two, but there is a loan for everybody. One might be FHA, one might be conventional. And they come in behind the 30-year fixed first mortgage, and they provide a deferred second loan. And they have a second and a third. So and that that's one of the examples where I was saying somebody could potentially get in with less than 3% down because they're layering the first, the second, and the third in order to help somebody get in who can qualify for the payment, but just doesn't have the money. And so CalHAFA is one that we use very often. And so that second and or third has to be repaid when they refinance or go to sell. If they didn't want to sell for 30 years because they have a 30-year mortgage, they can forget about the second and the third. Some have zero interest rates, some have low interest rates. Uh, if it is accruing interest, they don't have to pay it back until they go to sell. Very similar to a student loan. Uh, so for those that have student loans, uh, understand the benefits of them. Um, but what I've seen over the years, because I've been doing this so long, is just like in your example of the townhome, is you get your foot in, you get your starter home, you build up your equity, then you repay these loans when you go to sell. Uh, I know worrisome for some who think, oh, I don't want to have a second, much less a third. 
But again, the benefits and the equity growth that you're going to gain over five or 10 years is far greater than the loan that you have to pay back plus the potential interest. Yes, we, we do that a lot. There are also grants. One local to the Bay Area is called Neighborhood Lift. It's $25,000 and it is for closing costs and down payment assistance. You have to qualify for that as well. So part of what we do is educating people on the resources. You might want to go look into this and see if you qualify for that grant. You have to have the patience and the tenacity to, to know it's, it's not a quick process, but it's definitely uh, worthwhile for some. Now, let's just say I'm somebody who maybe had some difficulties in the past and my credit score isn't so great. Um, what, what kind of things can you do to help people with that sort of situation? Great question. Without trying to help somebody improve their credit score, I'll just say FHA allows us to go down to 540. Now, you don't want a 540 credit score uh, for a couple of reasons. Mainly, your interest rate is going to be higher. So yes, we can provide financing for low credit scores, but it's going to cost you. Uh, but it's good for people to know on an FHA loan, 540 is our minimum. And on a conventional loan, which most people want a conventional loan, it's 620. That's still not high. Again, the higher the credit score, the better. So if we pull your credit and we see that it's lower and your interest rate is going to be higher, we, like many uh, lenders, offer what's called a rapid rescore. Now, a rapid rescore is a service that some lenders will help you with as an accommodation. It's not something that we advertise, and we're certainly not credit rescore companies or experts, but because we're pulling a credit report, we can work with you on how best to improve your credit score. A lot of times it's something as simple as the amount of credit you're borrowing, the percentage. So if you have a credit card with say a 10,000 max balance and you're at 9,500, then one of the recommendations by the, our credit vendor is going to be to pay that down to about 20 to 30%. That seems to be kind of the magic place to be percentage-wise to improve your credit score. So that's a simple one. Late payments, only time really cure that. Um, and so that's the thing that we counsel, our, especially our first-time home buyers on, is a simple late, an accidental late, and I've seen it, somebody accidentally made their target payment late and it dropped their score a hundred points. Wow. So a late payment and a really recent to the application could be devastating and take a yes. long time to, to work through. So late payments are the most difficult to overcome, but too much credit is easy to overcome if the, if the borrower has cash to pay it down collections, paying down or paying off collections, removing disputes. So people think, well, that's not accurate. I'm going to dispute that. Well, a dispute on your credit can also hurt you. So there are things that you wouldn't think of. And again, we're not credit repair companies, but we've been doing this long enough and we work with our credit vendors who have these services and what they do based on the individual's credit profile, they give us a feedback document that says, if you do X, Y, and Z, we believe we can get your credit score to X. There's a lot of creative ways that we can do credit improvement and boy, does it improve your interest rate. I think yes. the thing to share with you is because especially first time homebuyers don't know really sometimes what their credit score is and 
how long it will take to improve it is we recommend that people apply way earlier than they think they're ready to buy. Sometimes mm -hmm. it takes six months to a year we work with our first time home buyers to get them ready. And one of the things that we find most often is the credit score that's hurting them. And the other thing is um, borrowers will come to us and say, well, I already know my credit score. And absolutely, we know our credit score. We get the alerts, we know what they are, but they're being told one credit bureau. And so for a mortgage credit report, we do what I call a deep dive. We pull all three bureaus and the, the representative score is the mid score, the lowest mid score for a married couple or two borrowers. So you might think on your alert, you're 740. And I tell you it's 680. And that's a lot uh, to take in. Um, and we have to educate people as to why ours might be different than what they think it is. Yeah. And that's a, a great point because people automatically assume it's this number that I'm seeing on my report or in this alert. And who knew that you're going to take the lowest score of a married couple. So that right. the lowest mid, right. The lowest mid score. Mid right. score correct. And that, right. that is, can be very different as I pointed out. I think that's really something that people need to get educated on. And I always recommend that first-time home buyers, especially, go to first-time home buyer education. We do that. Um, uh, most lenders do that. We love helping people get educated to get them ready to buy. But you can accidentally make mistakes without even realizing it. Like thinking paying your charge card to zero is a good thing. That can drop your credit score like a rock because you don't have enough credit. You might have accounts with no balances. Well, there's no activity to show the credit vendor that you are making your payments on time. And right. so people will say, well, I paid off. I'm not a credit user. I paid off my cards. I don't owe anything. Well, guess what? Now we're in a, in a, a worse predicament. And that, that I wish it weren't that way, right? I'm happy with those people who are not in debt. I'm proud of them. But you, a little bit of credit goes a long way. Right. So my recommendation is instead of having three cards that you have zero balance, Use your charge cards, charge your gas, charge your groceries, and then pay it off or pay it down. Keep a very small balance that that can take that credit score right, right over 800 very quickly. That's great to know. I think is counterintuitive, right? As you were explaining that people think I should just pay these cards off every month because I'm using my money wisely. I'm not going into debt per se. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm being charged these uh, percentages every month on this, um, these debts, but right. it's not the case as you're just describing. You really right. uh, want to show them that you're consistently making your payments on time. You know, you're not being late. You're not going over what you correct. owe. Yeah. That's what the lender is basing our approval off of. Are you going to be able to afford this house and make these payments on time? Ultimately, that's what our underwriter's job is, is to assess the risk and the credit portion is a really large part of it. Well, switching gears a little bit, I want to ask you, uh, we use a lot of terms interchangeably, uh, pre-approved, pre-approval or pre-qualified. Another is mortgage uh, versus uh, home loan. I mean, right. we're using these like totally interchangeably, but they sort of have different meanings. They sure do. Thank you for asking that question. Um, Pre-qualification is when a borrower wants to fill out an application, but doesn't want a credit pull okay. for whatever reason, they're not ready. And we all know that that's also 
very dangerous, too many people pulling credit because that can drop your credit score. So a pre-qual, pre-qualification, we call them pre-quals, is when somebody wants us as lenders to look at what they would qualify based on what they tell us. So what they tell us their income is, what they tell us their monthly debts are, and what they tell us their credit score is. And we do that all day long when people just are exploring. So a pre-qualification is as good as the input into the application. We don't verify it. And that's that. And we can do a written estimate off that and give them a good idea of what they need for a down payment and closing costs. And a lot of people like to start there. So that's a pre-qualification. If you apply with the lender and you ask for a pre-qualification, that's fine. We can keep your application in our files for as long as uh, it takes until you're ready to move to the next step. And the next step is pre-approval. So at that point, we are pulling your credit and we are verifying your income. And so what that means is we're collecting your documents. That means verifying your income with your employer. So we're collecting pay stubs and W-2s, getting uh, verification of employment forms and really validating it to confirm that our numbers are correct. And then we run it through an automated system. All lenders have an automated system and it's like a first review. It's not a human, your loan officer is human, but the system is automated. And the loan officer is telling you, yes, based on the information that we verified, this is what you're pre-approved for. So, and a lot of people go shopping based on that pre-approval and we issue pre-approval letters to real estate agents. We at Guild Mortgage and most lenders take it one step further these days, which is to submit that file to the underwriter. That's the human being. And the underwriter is the one that has the decision-making authority. And so we like to do that. So when the borrowers go out shopping, there are no stones unturned. We have validated everything. We've made sure that the underwriter is going to approve it subject to acceptable property, of course. And if it's a condo, that the condo uh, project is approved. There's a lot more uh, to it, but the, what we call the credit package has been reviewed by a human being, an underwriter. And that's when we feel really good to send our buyers and borrowers out to shop for a home. That makes sense. So in terms of uh, mortgage, or, you know, home loan, is there differences in those meanings or is it really the same? It's the document. That's a great okay. question. Um, deed of trust and mortgage are the two legal documents that the buyer signs. The deed of trust gets recorded with the county and that says that the buyer agrees. They, we've recorded this deed. They owe us $500,000 and they're going to pay us back. The mortgage is the note, the same as the note. They're signing it and agreeing to pay the lender back. So that's the official definition of those terms. Home loan mortgage are interchangeable, but, but mortgage is the official term. And in some states, it's different than mortgage, but in California, it's a mortgage. Right, that's right. And so, and in fact, some states use escrows that's and some right. do not. That's right, very, yeah. very different. Even Northern and Southern California is very different. It's like we're, we are two different states, but here in Northern California, we do use escrow and title companies. They protect, as we know, the buyer and the seller. They're the disinterested third party who has no interest. They're unbiased and they protect all parties. So I don't understand states that don't have that personally. I lend in California, Arizona, Nevada, Idaho, and Utah. And it's interesting to see the difference differences state by state. Some use attorneys, 
the buyer and the seller are always protected, but I think the way we do it here, it's less costly and it's more efficient and it protects all all involved. Great point. We're hearing a lot about with inflation being, you know, really incredibly high um, at this time. Owning a home is a hedge against inflation. So what does that mean exactly? Could you explain that to us a little bit? Well, you're building long-term wealth when you buy a home. People should not go into this decision as a short-term gain. Mm. It is long, it's a long-term benefit. And that's your hedge against inflation. Because if you have a 30-year mortgage, you are riding all the markets. That when we're inflation, uh, in inflation, in a recession, all of it. Uh, so I think that that is the, the best answer that I can give about hedging against the wild rides of the market, uh, like we're all experiencing right now with the stock market. Yes, there's definite increases and de decreases in our market values. We know that. And we know that, especially after experiencing the mar market uh, meltdown in 2008. The normal markets appreciate at about 3 to 4% per year in California. What we've seen the last few years is higher than normal, but that's why I want to explain that, that we should not expect what we've just seen over the last few years. Really plan on three to 4% per year. If that isn't a hedge against inflation, I don't know what is. Yes, a lot of people are investors and they want to get into the investment market in real estate. I applaud that and I believe in that as well, but not until you've got your primary home, you can afford that. That's when you should consider after owning a home for many years, considering going into the investment or second home market. That's where it becomes more risky. It requires more down uh, because it is more risky because think about what we went through in the mortgage meltdown people held on to their primary homes and let their investment in second homes go. That's just sure. the, the, the nature of human nature, I should say, is you're going to protect where you live. You, you pay higher interest for those and you put more down. So, and that's the reason for that is there is definitely more risk to the lender of somebody walking away. There is no other investment that compares to home ownership for the long-term gain and the security and the things that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And you know, another thing that I've heard that I think is fantastic is really talking about um, when's a good time to plant a tree? Well, it was 20 years ago. When's the next best time? And that's right now. Right and now. so that can totally be applied to the housing market, right? When was a good time to buy a home? 20 years ago. But you know, the next best time is now. Absolutely. You shared a story and I have one too. Uh, and it was many, many years ago when I was um, moving from our first home and buying our next home, our buy-up home. And one of the things that I regret was not keeping that home as a rental. Yeah. And woulda, coulda, shoulda, uh, but you know, uh, there's no point in looking back, but the sitting on the sidelines in the real estate market is the worst thing you can do. As you said, plant the tree now. If it's right for you to keep an investment home and you you can qualify for it most likely it's going to be a good decision long run and do it um instead of i, I think there's so much fear in in that decision and uh, yes there's risk and you don't want to you don't want to be you know reckless by any means but if you are working with a maybe a financial planner in addition to your loan officer who's qualifying you and telling you yes you can qualify for this 
you really need to just move and do it. And I know I have a pipeline of borrowers who are sitting on the sidelines right now. They're, they're worried that either values are going to go down or, or interest rates are even going to go up further. And the longer the way they wait, I tell them, the more you lose. That, that's, even if it's temporary, um, on market devaluation, it's always temporary. So if you really are buying that home uh, as an investment for your family, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay in the long run. So uh, I, like your, I like your tree analogy, plant it now. Well, this has all been so great. I love this information and I hope that it's helpful. I wanted to also ask you if there's any uh, books that you've read or podcasts that you've listened to that have been helpful to you, have maybe provide some inspiration or education that's helped you grow that you could recommend to us. Good question. Right now I'm reading, uh, and it's on a podcast too, is The Energy Bus by John Gordon. You know, I have to be positive and high energy when people are feeling a little down right now because the market has changed. And so our jobs are to be positive cheerleaders because there's so much to gain. The market is still excellent and we need to point out the positives. And this book is a kind of a 10 step uh, positive parable um, of uh, somebody on a bus and meeting somebody on a bus and talking through kind of life's challenges. And uh, I highly recommend it. Really a fun, fun, quick read. Excellent. And so you're saying it's a, a book and a podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Right. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes for anyone who um, is interested in checking that out. Yeah. I'm actually reading the book. Uh, sometimes I like a good old fashioned book. I like to feel the paper sometimes. So this time I'm reading the book. I love it. Well, Janine, thank you again for being on. If people have questions, they want to reach out to you. How would they do that? What, what's a good contact for you? Well, cell phone is always the best. Any way people like to communicate by phone or by text or by email. Phone number is 408-835-3246. And the email is jtowner at guildmortgage.net. And I'd love to help anybody who's interested in just exploring. Start by exploring and go from there. Well, thank you again, Janine, for being on the show. I appreciate it so much. And you've shared so much great information and educated us today. And I love it. So thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to be invited. And I hope there was some helpful information. Thanks for joining us this week on the Pockets of Knowledge podcast. Be sure to join us again next week for more great information designed to educate, inspire, and empower you to achieve your goals. And thanks again for listening. 